to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for today's show. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, and I've written some stuff, and I've been a professor of philosophy and a real estate investor and so forth. I do have something to share, though. I've got an event that I'm helping to um, uh, run, and I'm going to be speaking at. It's going to be in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, October 17th. It's the Apostle Paul's School of Tent Making or something like that. <laughs> so if you're a pastor and you have an interest in learning a little bit more about what tent making actually is from the Apostle Paul's point of view and how that might be helpful in a range of ways in the pastoral ministry, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes and you can uh, sign up for that. And you don't even have to be a pastor to be part of it, but it is uh, originally, uh, you know, designed to address pastors, but anybody that's maybe interested in a side gig that could like develop into a livelihood is welcome. Anyway, enough about me. How about you, Tom? I take it that conference isn't about encouraging people to build more tents and make them and live under bridges. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, yeah, it's, right. it's, uh, the, the aim is to avoid that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's actually and, a great way to put was- it. And I thought he was referring to Burning Man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's been in the news a little bit here lately. Um, I'm Tom Price. I teach uh, systematic theology, philosophy, uh, Christian ethics, one of the places, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. And locally, right now, I'm teaching uh, intro to philosophy to some fresh undergrads at a local uh, university, which have not yet been corrupted by the rest of the coursework, so it's rather fun. (laughs) Okay, good, good. Well, you know, there's been so much pushback, you know, in the culture at large against wokeism. I'm anticipating maybe a turning of the page a little bit on all that, maybe some sense coming back. Uh, Anyway, that's that's a whole other matter. But um, Glenn, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Ministry Associate at Reflections Ministries. I've got my own um, 501c3 called Every Square Inch Ministries. Uh, I'm a freelance uh, speaker, uh, writer, a whole bunch of other things uh, that I'm having trouble keeping up with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a busy busy, uh, time. for all of us, but uh, fun too. Anyway, um, today is my day. We don't have a guest today. We, we've had a number of interviews here recently, and we're looking forward to another one in just a few weeks with Patrick Deneen, the author of Why Liberalism Failed and uh, Regime Change. And uh, in light of that, uh, Pat's a, f- a friend of mine. We haven't seen each other for a long time, it's been like five years, but uh, he's coming on the show at the end of the month. And in, in light of that, I thought, well, let's uh, see what he's up to. He's he's actually a contributor to uh, the Post Liberal Order, which is a Substack, uh, you know, on Substack, obviously. And uh, he posted something here uh, just the other day entitled "In Defense of Order, Part One," and he makes some observations that I think are really uh, kind of noteworthy and things to keep in mind. And and that is, uh, when we think about conservatives, uh, one of the people that, uh, for people who are informed about sort of the, you know, scholarship in the 20th century and, um, sort of leading lights when it comes to the recovery of conservatism, uh, you know, Russell Kirk is right at the top and he, uh, wrote, um, 
you know, on the subject of order, in fact, the title of a book uh, that he wrote was, in, it was uh, The Roots of American Order, which was published in 1974. Um, let me go ahead and read the opening paragraphs of uh, Pat's uh, treatment. By the way, Pat uh, teaches at Notre Dame. He's a political philosopher. And his book, uh, you know, that I already noted, um, Why Liberalism Failed, was a huge runaway hit. It was a bestseller. It was actually blurbed by Obama. Knowing Pat, I don't think he uh, shied away from that, but at the same time, he's not a, an Obama supporter. <laughs> but anyway, um, so let me, let me uh, this is actually from an address he gave at ISI, the Institute for uh, Intercollegiate Studies, is it? Or, no, let me see, ISI. Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Yes, Intercollegiate Studies Institute. That's it. I had, I thought, that's not an S. <laughs> anyway, uh, which is an important organization uh, that works with college faculty and students and sponsors summer retreats and summer internships and brings in top level um, scholars from all over the United States and beyond to lecture. And so Pat uh, was uh, there to lecture. Uh, and uh, this is how his lecture began. Let me be, uh, begin by noting re uh, a remarkable fact that we are devoting this week to the theme of Russell Kirk's book, The Roots of American Order. The book was published in 1974, shortly before the political ascendancy of modern conservatism with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. While that vindication of Kirk's long efforts lay some years in the future, the book appeared in the wake of the establishment of a number of what were to become legacy conservative institutions. Given the minor focus on order among those institutions, Kirk's book was already out of tune in that expanding ecosystem of what was becoming establishment conservatism. Then, as now, the emphasis of institutional conservatism was upon liberty or freedom, two words often used interchangeably, especially individual and economic liberty or freedom. For all the claims of defending the variety of viewpoints that arise from a market society, these institutions are remarkably homogenous, indeed, essentially indistinguishable in their unstinting invocations of the central value of liberty, while remarkably silent when it comes uh, to a commendation of order. Kirk's book was, in a sense, already out of fashion from the moment it was published. Then he goes into a list of uh, purpose statements by different, what he calls uh, establishment or legacy conservative institutions. There's the Heritage Foundation, and here's how the Heritage Foundation describes itself uh, or defines itself. Free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and a strong national defense. These are the values that we fight for every single day. Yeah, and they do. I've been impressed with uh, them over the years. Then uh, the American Enterprise Institute, quote, a public policy think tank dedicated to, to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a free world. Next, 
Cato Institute, which no surprise would put the stress on liberty. The vision of the Cato Institute is to create free, open, and civil societies founded uh, on libertarian principles. And obviously libertarians would lead with liberty. Uh, and then it goes on, you know, the Institute of Human, Humane Studies, Young America's Foundation, Hudson Institute, Fund for American Studies, Liberty Fund, Law and Liberty, Acton Institute, and so forth. But in every case, um, liberty is what you lead with, with those organizations. And uh, order is uh, either unmentioned or just merely implied. So what do you guys take uh, with regard to that? Uh, can we have liberty without order? No. <laughs> okay, great. Well, the show. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next question. Um, yeah. Um, what What's interesting is if you actually read the Acton Institute's material rather than just their their statement on their uh, web page, they talk about actually a very old expression: ordered liberty. Right. Mm -hmm. And that I think is important. Uh, I know it through Acton and through the people who who I've worked with over there. Um, the idea is that liberty is the goal, but liberty can only be achieved in a uh, a state that is ordered properly. Because without the proper ordering, liberty turns to license, um, and people start preying on each other and all of those sorts of things. Right. So, so you don't stay you don't stay free very long if freedom is the only uh, you know value. Right. And when we're talking about liberty, again, this is something we've talked about I don't know how many times, but liberty and freedom are not the same concept exactly. Yeah. Uh, we we uh, we conflate the two, but their liberty is a narrower idea than freedom is. Yeah, I think that's what Pat was kind of implying when he kind of a tongue in cheek or maybe as an aside said, these are terms that are being used interchangeably. I know he would yeah, know exactly it, what we're talking he, about. Yeah. He would know the difference. Yeah. Um, just uh, as a reminder, or maybe the first time, if we've got a new listener here, um, the idea of Liberty is, you know, the, the classic definition is the freedom to, uh, to make choices within the boundaries set by divine and natural law. Right. So liberty cannot exist in the absence of boundaries, in the absence of parameters. So if you look at the Garden of Eden, you can eat any tree but that one. Mm -hmm. yeah. if, they, if you didn't have the but that one, you wouldn't have a state of liberty. You'd have a state of license, uh, freedom to do just anything you wanted to without restraint. Yeah, and yeah. even that particular story, uh, you, I think, have a tradition of interpretation that uh, – uh, maintains that the the temptation was to make up your own rules in effect yeah. uh, the knowledge of good and evil is not just simply the experience of evil and good but actually the freedom to define those terms so yeah, I think anyway what, yeah i think i think what knowing um from what i've read of Deneen and other others committed to similar um, work and I share a lot of those um, assumptions and, and criticisms of, of certain variants of libertarianism and certain views of conservatism and, and liberalism, even certain views of classic liberalism. What do I mean? Um, if we kind of go into my territory with metaphysics, let's put it this way: what 
classical understandings of human freedom were grounded in, especially Western civilization and Christianity's contribution, was the fact that we have natures, human nature, and then we are able to enact that nature in various ways. That's what choosing is about. It's, it's taking, you know, enacting our nature this way rather than that way. And what happens with the notion of liberty and freedom that enters into these newer pictures, if you will, is that it, it tends to conceive the human almost strictly voluntaristically, which means the nature doesn't really govern the choice or the freedom to make a choice, but rather the choice is the, the, the significant thing about us and anything natural outside or about ourselves needs to follow that. So there is nothing governing. There's no intelligible nature that I have that I need to consider when I enact my choices. Um, and so what that does is makes, makes what, what often is called an unpremised view of choice. It has nothing governing or directing it other than maybe something base or some some bad appetite, right? And so, so that's the problem with it. Whereas formed choice and freedom is governed by the intelligibility of natures and purposes and that freedom is a truthful enactment of what our nature is to perfect and realize it. And so institutions, formative institutions, are those that help underwrite and foster that and, and, and allow a society to, to um, cultivate that, whereas one that merely you know, sets the groundwork for this kind of a radical libertarianism or one that doesn't consider form leads exactly where we've talked about, even to, to as Mike Hanby will argue, nihilism as a, as a right. total yeah, concept. Of, yeah, one of the things that you brought out there, Tom, is that you know, this choice is going to be in, informed by something. It's going to either be informed by some passion, and then in that case, uh, or something else. But in the case of passion, uh, it's either going to be informed by something horrendous, like a like a wicked passion or evil passion, or we've got to have a kind of, I guess, Pollyannish view of human nature, which is it's just you know, we're just all nice, you know, deep down in, in you know, yeah. in, inside, we're just little children wanting to be loved, <laughs> that kind of stuff, you know, yeah, it's Rousseau again, you know, that, yeah. you know, his, yeah. his, uh, unfallen noble savage yeah. is really, uh, I think something that has a powerful influence in our world today. I mean, you, you, you talk to, you, you see all the stuff that's going on with the alphabet soup people and basically, that's their that's their way of operating. There's no such thing as wicked desires, except that's of right. course those that white straight men have. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I I want to say I'm glad you brought up Rousseau, um, <laughs> except I'm not. Right. But um, Rousseau, th th there's a really interesting way in which Rousseau is the anti-Augustine. Yeah. Um, Rousseau wrote a book called The Confessions, right? You know, which yeah. was his response to what Augustine yeah. did in his Confessions. Yeah. Um, Rousseau's idea that we are innocent um, until society corrupts us 
is a direct contradiction to Augustine, who says, well, society is corrupt because we're corrupt. Yeah, and society also has an important role in restraining uh, right. us. Um, right. So it may not be but, able to perfect us, but at least it can keep us from getting as bad as we could be. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and, and the key thing in, with Augustine is, uh, in this regard, is uh, Augustinian psychology, which is something I wish we would recover. Yeah. yeah. Um, Augustine's core idea is that um, our choices are conditioned by what he calls the weight of our love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, you know, desire is, our desires are at the root of our will, which means that if we do take libertarian free will, uh, our our corrupt desires will inevitably lead us to make corrupt choices. And uh, so what ends up happening is of our own free will, we may choose anything other than God because we will never accept God on God's own terms. Yeah. And it, it isn't until God intervenes and changes our hearts that we will, by our free will, respond to him. You know, so in this way, Augustine preserves free will on the one hand, but also predestination. Because okay. he doesn't understand will as being this free-floating thing right. untied to our desires. Yeah, yeah. You know, stepping back from this a little bit, and, I th- and, and as, as you think about uh, why conservative institutions, and I know people who are connected with a number of these institutions, they would not agree in agreement with everything we've said. It's not as though they're, they're against order. They understand how important order is for, for liberty. But, um, you know, they're trying to make a case for conservatism in an environment that's not uh, willing to listen very closely and uh, is uh, sort of stubbornly hostile to the essential core convictions that we're, we're getting at right now. So it's almost as though you got to lead with liberty. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're going up against the libertines, (laughs) you know, and it's not entirely evident yet, just how bad things can get under their sort of, sort of control. Uh, there's the paradox, the control of the libertines. That's what we live with right now. Uh, then, uh, you know, the thing you'd be, you start with is where you think you're most likely to get, uh, the best reception. Let's, let's put the stress on liberty. Let's put the accent there. We all know that order is super significant, right? But those folks out there don't know. And if we lead with that, they won't even give us any time to, to make our case. So do you think I'm onto something with that, or or, if, or am I being too sympathetic? <laughs> well, I, I think I mean, I, I think that de- definitely the the catering tends towards somehow expressing conservatism so that it will be palatable. Just like, but I think you know, I think one of the things Janine does, at least from the stuff I remember reading, is he kind of. He kind of taps in the territory no one likes to tap. And and what I mean by that is he likes to go to those places that basically show that a lot of the the verbal agreements versus underpinning commitments are different. And so a lot of conservatism in its attempt to accommodate itself or make itself palatable actually carries along with it a lot of the assumptions that it in otherwise would or should reject. 
And in doing so, they actually make a hybrid, a, a form of conservatism that really is underwritten by philosophical and metaphysical assumptions that later on do it in. And so it, it, won't, it will not have the capacity to do what proper form and institutions and, and orientation of our actions should do. Now, the flip side is with the, the let's say, the left-leaning or the liberal or the libertarian with their strong emphasis on freedom, Deneen will also note is that on one hand, they want that freedom to be, um, to break out of any kind of rigid forms that kind of hamper certain things that we should as as choosing agents be able to to pick but the flip side is the chaotic consequence of that leads to the imposition of a stronger form that isn't in accord with our natures and actually is very much against our natures and therefore it becomes totalitarian rather than allowing our natures to truly and society to truly unfold that's the big paradox. Um, this yeah. is something that the you know that you know the, the classic philosophers noted. You know um, yeah. that this you know this sort of uh, progression ultimately uh, in pursuit of an unformed freedom leads to the worst kind of totalitarianism or tyranny. They wouldn't have used the term totalitarianism, but the tyranny in our time it's worse. In other words. Uh, uh, totalitarianism. I was just reading uh, James Burnham's book, um, the, uh, the Revolt. Oh, let me see, the uh, the Managerial Revolt, which was published in 1941. Hmm. And in that, um, you know, he's he's making the observation that totalitarianism is something that maybe people like Genghis Khan wish they could have pulled off, but they didn't have the facility to do so. They didn't have the technology to do this. So and now we do. But that's 1941. You know, he was noting that. Um, so what we see kind of developing is um, this libertine edge of our society uh, is the means by which, or the paradoxically, the means by which totalitarianism is, is, is seeping into to our world. Anyway. Um, yeah. Go will, ahead, Glenn. I'm going to bring us back to Rousseau. Okay. <laughs> okay. R- R- Rousseau does something in his books that is really sleazy on the one hand, but is very instructive on the other. He redefines the word freedom. And for Rousseau, he says that freedom is submission to the general will. Right. Mm-hmm. In other words, it doesn't have anything really to do with the individual or the individual's desires. Freedom is submission to the general will. Now, this is a definition of freedom that nobody really buys. Yeah. Except he defines it and then spends the rest of his treatise talking about freedom. And because of the connotations of the word, words have a denotation, it's formal meaning, a connotation, the sort of emotional and other things that are carried with that meaning. He relies on the, even though he's changed the denotation completely, he relies on the connotation of the word freedom to carry his argument. Yeah. Now, the reason why the reason why that's now propagandists and advertisers don't do this kind of thing constantly. The reason why that's important is that in a lot of ways, it may be that conservatives are falling into a trap Mm 
that in some ways is laid for them by Rousseau uh, in their discussion of freedom and liberty and all of that as a way of trying to carry the argument, but they don't bring with it the the essential things on a proper definition of liberty, or for that matter, the insistence on order that goes with that proper definition of liberty. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of ways, they play into uh, the hands, well, as Tom said, they're setting themselves up uh, by importing ideas that will ultimately lead to their undoing. So let's play a little bit with this uh, in the sense that uh, in the course of my life, there have been a couple of times where we've uh, arrived at a cultural moment where people were fed up with chaos and you know a, a, a sort of a, a very forthright call for order was made and people were, were happy um, you know I'm thinking about uh, you know the late 60s early 70s with a lot of the chaos uh, that you saw then you know the there was a you know, law and order uh, party, or, or at least that's how it was sometimes characterized. I'm talking about the Republican Party as being the party of law and order because pe people were sick of lawlessness. Um, I think about, uh, you know, the early 90s as well um, with the crack epidemic and a lot of the social unrest that we see, you know, sort of an encore of today, uh, but there were some politicians like Rudy Giuliani uh, who just came out and said, okay, we got to establish order here, and people were glad. But uh, people couldn't put up with it very long, I guess, or maybe the strong sort of libertine, uh, you know, sort of impulse uh, eventually just revives, and you get okay. it happening uh, uh, again. Uh, all right. I, I, I want to suggest that you're missing something important here. Okay, go for it. If you look at New York, <clears throat> where Giuliani was doing his work with broken window policing and all of that sort of thing, he established a, a, a degree of order within the city that, frankly, pretty much everybody loved. And it was only in the context of him having established that kind of order that they could start complaining about how he was doing it. Well, I agree. So yeah. it's the, it was the success of of the I don't want to say imposition, but the you know the the establishment of a system of order that provided the stability for people to begin complaining about all kinds of other things, which has now led to its complete undoing. Yeah, and there was a lot of. Uh... Well, I, I, I guess um, work in the shadows with regard to the to the politics of libertinism. They were looking for their chance. They were looking for the moment uh, that they could seize and return to the you know the the insanity of their own programs. And now, you know, the question I have at this point is: uh, Will uh, there be Will, will, the, will there be someone with the kind of courage and charisma to take advantage of the current insanity? I'm not, I'm not seeing anything uh, that gives me a whole lot of uh, confidence. Maybe, maybe, you know, someone like Ron DeSantis down in Florida. But uh, apart from 
you know, uh, you know, a little, you know, that here or a little bit there. I don't, I don't have a, a sense that we're on the cusp of some major recovery or sort of, sort of cultural um, renewal. If you get my drift, yeah, I, had a, I, I did have a sense of that in the early '90s, though. Yeah, well, I think right now, and, and I, I still think there are certain threads in the not earlier '90s that are gone now, and and I think that's what makes. I, th- I think that's what makes the pressing theological question significant. And this is why I think theologians have started to hone in on this, um, especially in terms of ethics and, and politics. It, it's that what you have typically going back and forth here is the kind of two polarities of the flesh, right? On the one hand, as Paul tells us in Roman 8, you've got l- law, right? But legalistically understood, almost oppressive against our rebellious natures. So then you have the kind of Democrat in, in today's world wants to emphasize liberty, right, and, and protect it at all costs and hinder any kind of limit on it that, that legalism, if you will, um, will impose or f- bad form in its mind. But then it gets so bad that it flips back to the law and order figure. But I think figures like Deneen are trying to basically say that's because what you're dealing with are two bad understandings and practices and institutional um, structured, you know, a whole society structured around this kind of back and forth play between a, a bad understanding of reality and a bad way of working with form and liberty. And that even yeah. though both are significant, there there are, you know, his whole point and Schindler and other figures is to make make a case for a better balancing act. And I think one that does justice to our natures in in a in a real way. Yeah, and he's uh, going to get to in this article some of the things you've already brought up, Tom. Just to kind of fill listeners in, uh, Pat is a Tocqueville Tocqueville scholar, so he draws heavily on him. Uh, he's Roman Catholic, and he's uh, very much uh, you know in the Thomist sort of frame of mind. Um, but he's also uh, like a number of thinkers today, you know, you bring up the work that theologians and uh, philosophers are engaged in at the moment. He's, he's trying to understand um, the roots of our dis- disorder uh, by looking at philo- philosophical moves that were, you know, that occurred in the past. So, yes. you know, his, his take, I think, on the nominalist uh, mm-hmm. And voluntarism uh, would be exactly the same as yours, Tom, and ours. Mm-hmm. Um, he's uh, also pretty critical of Locke, yeah, and that's the thing that's gotten him into a lot of, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, trouble. I don't mean in a bad sense, but just in the sense that that's the thing that he is, you know, that's the person he's looking at and um, and criticizing that other people are defending, like Joshua. We had Joshua Mitchell on. In fact, Joshua. Uh, didn't mention, if I remember correctly, Pat directly, but he's, I, you know, when he meant, he made a comment and I, and I thought, you're talking about Pat Deneen. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is where you have your, your, your difference growing up, you know, within trying to resolve kind of solutions within varieties of conservatism between kind of either a return to this, this kind of, you know, this better, purer form, as they'll argue, of classical liberalism versus one that thinks, no, we can't go back because there was already problems in as ingredients within that classical mix that are showing themselves now. So it is a deep philosophical 
in metaphysical and theological debate. Um, and so this is why the philosophical and the theological have become so serious within these conversations. So let me just, just summarize the, the gist of his, his most famous book, Why Liberalism Failed. The answer is because it succeeded. <laughs> in other words, we got what, the, what was you know, in the mix from the start. He's saying, you know, we, 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 we made a recipe and we put it in the oven and we, and we open up the oven and we don't like what, how it turned out. Well, his, his, his response is, well, how did you think it would turn out? You know, these yeah. are the things that were in the mix. Yeah. Um, now, I think that we can get into some really good analysis of, you know, what was going on, say, in Locke's mind and, and that kind of stuff. And that's, and that's worthwhile doing. And we, sh- and we should do that when, when he's on the show with us. But I can tell you, you're itching Maybe to say Maybe we could get something. Locke on the show. <laughs> Since we want to know what was going on. <laughs> I can tell you, you're itching mm-hmm. to say something, though, Glenn. Well, yeah. In, in, I think a lot depends on what you're looking at in Locke. There are certain things where Locke is completely off the rails. Yeah. But there are certain elements of it that I would argue, as I did in Slaying Leviathan, that I would argue that he actually successfully synthesizes a lot of Christian political theology that had come before him. Um, Whereas before, a number of these areas, unalienable rights, uh, covenant theories of government, resistance theory, were sort of separate categories. He's the one who figured out a way, with some predecessors, but he's the one who figures out a way to really unite them. Yeah, And in that sense, I think Locke did a great job. Right. There are other things I would yeah, have his, to say it, that are his a notion bit off. of of the the human being, especially the kind that could lead to a certain kind of strong emphasis on the individual and freedom in a in a kind of voluntaristic or kind of atomized way. And whether he's guilt, I'm I'm not a Locke hmm. scholar. I mean, I, I've read enough again to find problematic some things and and interesting others. But I think that's where their point of contention sits. Um, I don't think they would say, you know, I think every contribution was bad. I think most would be committed to certain views of of things post-Locke. Yeah. Well, I'd um, like to – go ahead, Glenn. Well, another, another quick direction, though, you that we'd moved off of, um, whether there's a turning point happening. Yeah. Um. This week, and I, it'll be old news by the time the show comes out, but this week, uh, Adams, mayor of New York, yeah, um, has come out and basically said, New York can't take any more immigrants. It's going to destroy the city, but there's no end in sight. Yeah. Now, this he, is the guy who ran on a platform of making New York a sanctuary city. Right. And, and apparently, a- Biden is trying to, to pull his bacon out of the fire by prohibiting Texas from sending people to other states. So we're going to keep the problem in Texas. We're not going to let it hit these Democratic strongholds. It's not going to work. San Francisco, similarly, is falling apart. Yeah, Yeah. the the thing is, is there's a lot of ruin in in the ruin of a country. I can't remember Mm. that, but I think it's Burke. And what you have is a weird kind of... uh, Codependency, you know, yeah. with uh, a particular political arrangement where, where you have very wealthy, powerful elites who use democratic politics as a cover for their own selfish reasons. Yeah. So they can signal, I'm a compassionate person, uh, and they've got the money to 
pay their own secure for their own security and all that kind of stuff. And then you have, you know, just utter dependent, uh, utterly dependent people yeah. who, uh, for one reason or another, uh, are dependent on the largesse of the state. And then yeah. you've got the politicians who, who are being, you know, served by both party, both groups, yeah. you know, the, just the masses who vote for them and the money that is fed to them. And so, uh, this provides a tremendous cover and, uh, a lot of folks are just, have, have just given up. I mean, they're just mo- moving away. Middle class has just died out in some of these places. Right. But the question is whether those who have no choice or whatever, who have to stay, whether there's going to be some sort of backlash. Well, I and agree. I don't know what that, I don't know what that will look like, but it seems like it's going to have to happen. Well, I agree, but you know something that Tom said a minute ago is certain things have changed. One of those things is that a lot of the people who supported law and order in the past are dead. In other words, we we don't we don't have a, a large group of World War II vets voting and, anymore. And and I think that I mean one of the things I know from ethical discussions in the theological world is I, I think there has also been a well, for, first of all, this is not, this is you know kind of common criticism of of kind of you know traditionalist evangelicals or Protestants for that matter. They don't typically have a unified voice on anything. You know, they have school, you know very fragmented schools and, and positions. But a lot of times, the the place where the church could speak and Christians could speak, especially around the issue of immigration in society, um, we basically let the the better more actually more compassionate way of dealing with things get drowned out and just keep taking punches when we say you know what um this kind of immigration policy it isn't compassionate it isn't good for anybody it's not good for the people that are being flooded here ripped from their families and homelands where they prefer to be and it is causing all kinds of harm to them they become vulnerable open to trafficking drugs um, there isn't a lot of employment opportunities. So it is, it's a horrific tragedy. Well, well, getting, back, getting back to my comment about there being a whole lot of ruin. Yeah. Haiti has been a basket case for yeah. 200 years. Yeah. And you could say, well, they've never learned. Well, yeah. there, the, there are a lot of forces in play yeah. that uh, prevent uh, the tiny minority of sane people from actually winning. So, and the situation that we face in the United States, in my mind, is is tipping that way. Now, there are places where there's still a a strong kind of common sense realism, you know, but not in San Francisco, not in New York City. Would you like to know how to set up a privatized banking system that will help you separate from the mainstream banking juggernaut and avoid subjecting your hard-earned money to the whims of Wall Street? Join a growing community of like-minded individuals and business owners who leverage these privatized banking systems to use the same money in more than one place at the same time, while also enjoying tax-free growth and a plan for multi-generational wealth building. To find out more, contact today's sponsor, Private Family Banking Partners, at protectyourmoneynow.net. That's protectyourmoneynow.net. Net, where you can download their free ebook or set up a free 30-minute consultation. 
See the show notes for additional information. I do want to get to uh, this question of what are we talking about with regard to order? Uh, you know, Glenn and you have both done a good job of, of, of speaking to it, but I want to uh, quote Pat here and show how he's dealing with it. So he, he goes to, he's, you know, he says, according to the indispensable online etymological dictionary, <laughs> I, I admit I've gone there many times. <laughs> the word order originated from uh, a few root concepts, one with some remarkable or rather remarkable connotations and related ideas. Uh, so from the Latin, uh, nominative ordo, uh, row, line, rank, series, pattern, arrangement, routine, originally as, quote, a row of threads in a loom. That's fascinating. From the uh, proto-italic uh, uh, orden, row, order, source also of ordiri, to begin to weave. Uh, then he goes on to note that uh, the words ordain and ordination also mm. are derived from this root, uh, so the root, the word order, uh, as, as it's expressed through ordain and ordination, quote, a body of persons living under a religious discipline, end of quote. The verb order from ordren originally meant, quote, to give commands uh, for or to instruct authoritatively, end of quote, as well as to, quote, command to be made, done, or issued, end of quote. All of these meanings accord with the core conservative understanding that the human domain ought rightly to be a reflection of the order of creation itself. So there is, as you noted, Tom, a order already present. Yeah. Uh, and that what we're talking about here is not uh, one group of humans imposing their own ideas about what order should be on another group as much as it is acknowledging the order that already exists before any of us showed up. Hmm. And, and the way that, I mean, when we talk about metaphysics of creation, the way Christians understand it in that order, um, think of just Genesis and this, the laying out of these things, be fruitful, multiple. They're all so interconnected, you know, the, the nature of the family with it being the pr principal context for the procreative and the nurturing and the carrying it out and the responsibilities to generations, right? Well, what you have there is a, when that is enacted in accord with the created design and purposes, um, the, the living it out in that order is basically the way in which creation is porous to those aspects of divine sourcing and giving that allow it to flourish and move it towards its perfection and even supernatural end, which fulfills it, if you will. So when you break that, that porousness of the created is, is, is it's eclipsed. It's, it's turned in on itself. It's not drying off. If you just think of a plant being able to see the sun the right way versus not, right? It starts to wither, die, disease, get, and, and the same thing happens with society and social institutions and anything else for that matter. It, and so creation is never autonomous or, or pure in the sense that it doesn't absolutely depend continuously on the source for it to flourish and move it along the right way. And order 
understood the right way and society ordered the right way, and as Glenn mentioned before, and loves, right, related to all that the right way, is the, the, the flourishing and the salvific context. Um, anything short of that um, is a problematic. And, and you, know, it's, you know, it may be, a, again, what we would say is a, we have to tolerate it while it's not, now it's not in its perfect form, but we still should be pressing things to be, to flourish, yeah, the problem that we face, though, is that, you know, we've talked about the problem of, of skepticism. You know, you yeah. did a couple of great shows, Glenn, on some, uh, you know, skeptics uh, in history. Um, uh, and when we don't trust uh, our authorities yeah. um, who are, you know, trying to convey to us the nature of the ordered reality we find ourselves in, we just kind of write it all off as so you're just you're just trying to protect your own interests you know you're just yeah yeah you're not really telling us uh the way things are you're telling us the way things uh are if you know when they are in your interest and so because yeah. that deep skeptical uh distrust is so yeah. so present at the moment um it's almost in, in invincible if you get my drift um yeah. i mean people are damaging themselves yeah. uh, in the name of, of this liberty. In other words, it, it, got, it goes that far. People are willing to mutilate their own bodies yeah. Yeah. Uh, because they can't reconcile themselves to the fact that there is an order. Yeah, yeah it's worth noting that in Genesis 1-2, um, it says, uh, yeah, after God created the heaven and the earth, the earth was formless and empty. And then the rest of the creation narrative, the first three days, God is forming the creation. And then the second three days, he's filling it. Okay, so he's solving the two problems of it being formless and empty. When you reject order, what you are fundamentally trying to do is to return the earth to its formless shape. Right. You, you, are, you are fundamentally attacking the very nature of creation. Yeah. Yeah, Philip Reef, that's where he ends up, you know, in all of his work, uh, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, you know, and his other books. That's where he takes us. He takes you back to the spirit over the waters, and we imagine ourselves to be that spirit now. And we believe yeah. that we can kind of divide the waters and make what we please. And because that, basically, that formlessness and void is just simply sheer potentiality, right? Uh, undifferentiated being, you know. If we could get back to that in our fallen states, that makes us very happy because it makes us gods over it, right? To give it the right. form and the fashion. That's why it's, it's what Henri um, uh, Blocher used to always say. Is this, this is why you have this kind of chaotic move towards the the primal and the chaotic in all these mystery religions and sexual mm. cults because they yeah. think that is where the kind of energy source is that that you know that drives life where we basically become the the determiners of everything and so you you constantly see it whether it's in you know cult or politics yeah and uh but i think that the, the notion of you know, you mentioned about skepticism and, and, you know, this is 
you know, this is where I guess the pressing point of our immediate challenge is. And I think this is where, you know, certain lectures I remember uh, Mike can be given and others. There is a certain side where you kind of despair because it's it's happening at a rate faster than we can keep up with it. So the damage is going to have to be done before the conditions are there again to, to hear, listen or anything else. But he said in the process, we still keep to doing what we do as pointing to the light, enacting truthfulness right. in our marriages and trying to build or at least enact within our you know, faith communities and the like and help support those institutions and forms that, that at least hold and refract some of that truth, beauty and goodness that we need, we need to get through it. Yeah, I you, you mean, I see this all the time. I mean, you, you'll find people who maybe grew up in a, uh, very uh, disordered Christian home where perhaps some manipulative people were pursuing their own, you know, uh, fallen desires or, or, you know, allowing those to, to govern them, them and, and so doing oppress everybody around them. Uh, and they would often be the, the, the first to appeal to the authority of Scripture for you know, parental authority and that kind of thing. And what ends up happening is you get these, these kids, you know, who've grown up in an, in an environment like that and they hear the scriptures and they, and, and they can't trust, uh, they can't trust because of what has occurred. Now it used to be, uh, that there, well, let me put it this way. There've always been bad fathers. I mean, it's, it's not like, bad fathers were invented a uh, hundred years ago or something like that. There've yeah. always been tyrannical men. There've always been good men, but there, there's always been an understanding, I think, or at least an a, a, a prevalent enough uh, way of thinking that you separated the larger order from the particular situation you found yourself in. You'd say, well, the reason why I can call him a bad father is because he's not actually reflecting the fatherhood mm -hmm. of God. Um, yeah. So, when it comes to how do we how do we address a situation where the skepticism is just so ubiquitous uh, outside the church, inside the church, one one of the things that you see a lot of the winsome crowd try is, well, we're just not even going to talk about order anymore we're just going to talk about love and freedom and self-actualization that kind but of see, stuff see right yeah right there but, i mean I, I, yeah there's this this is that point i have this little article that i've been kind of working on where I, relating to that whole notion of negative world right the church finds itself in negative world but long before it became negative religion evangelical religion became ugly and its ugliness was because it was basically not imaging forth God in the world and, and beauty and all the riches it's been given, but it's, it's basically become a worse form of secularism and popular culture and everything else. It's and, simply ugly. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm going to pull that back to, well, 19th century. Um, it, it, what you see happening in the 19th century among liberal theologians is a call to sola scriptura. But their definition of sola scriptura is more solo scriptura. All we need is the Bible. We don't need any of the, well, order 
that's provided by tradition, by our understanding, you know, by the historic creeds or anything like that. The first people who make the argument for Bible alone apart from creeds, the first people who do this systematically are the liberals. And what you're seeing there is a rejection. In, it's the same sort of thing. It's a rejection of tradition in favor of a libertarian interpretation of scripture. I can do this any way I want to. The Bible, it means what it means to me. Yeah, yeah. And that has passed from the 19th century liberals. That's become almost mainstream American evangelicalism today. All right. And again, it's this it's the same thing we're talking about, this rejection of order done in a different sphere. Yeah, I think that that's, that's, that's really important. I think another thing that we need to see develop is a renewed faith in uh, a human ability to, to apprehend reality as it is, not just simply, uh, you know, as it's understood today as uh, that's your point of view, you know, perspectivalism yeah. or, yeah. you know, something uh, stronger like Kantianism, like you're just you know, imposing mm -hmm. order on, you know, a set of meaningless uh, sense data, you know, and, and it's your mind that's creating the order and not a perception of order in the world itself. We have to get beyond that kind of skepticism. Um, I had a discouraging conversation with a, with a, a very intelligent and connected lawyer yesterday. And in the course of the conversation, we we're talking about Lagos and I had, I had assumed that he had a, uh, classic understanding of Lagos, but as the conversation unfolded, I came to see that it was actually a much more modern way of thinking about it. Yeah. And I, and I just kind of, something in me died. <laughs> I was like, you know, I was like, you know, this is because like this guy stabbed is stabbed in the heart. <laughs> yeah. Cause this guy is like a very significant, uh, yeah. thinker and super, uh, guy. He's a super guy. I'm not saying he's not a super guy, but, it, but it is sort of like, okay, uh, that's the state of affairs, uh, in, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that it's a reflection of a, a prevailing way of thinking amongst yeah. even the most educated and, yeah. uh, effective lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think those are the variations of, that are holding place for us, but they're not full enough in terms of their metaphysical commitments and theological commitments. And, um, you know, there is a kind of, I mean, nihilism and modernism and scientism are totalitarian. They are about the whole under, under them, their core principles as first truth. We as Christians are as well. <laughs> the question is what first truth is the one that actually is true first, but secondly, allows the true metaphysic of creation to not move towards the chaotic and the void and the destructive and the anti-civilizational, nor to become fascist or totalitarian in unhealthy ways, but actually the per perfection of natures that are already inclined in, in directions as creatures towards which which we can begin to read and understand and learn and gain intelligibility of and orient ourselves towards. We just don't want to listen to it. And that's, you know, that's another big issue. That's the Augustinian point. Um, we're we're recalcitrant rebels. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, in terms of the recovery, um, you know, I, I'm a, you know, I'm reading right now, I'm working my way through second Chronicles and, you know, I've come to Hezekiah's story and, uh, the revival that occurs under Hezekiah is sudden, you know, mm-hmm. and the, the narrator notes how sudden it was. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you get when you read, you know, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, first and second Samuel, is there are these little indicators every once in a while that just sort of like open up a, a, wor- a window and you, and you see it was a lot worse than I thought. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, references to male prostitutes uh, in Jerusalem uh, mm-hmm. and that, you know, uh, finally they're being, uh, a, you know, address you know and and punished <laughs> that kind of thing uh yeah. it's like okay well how long had that been going on <laughs> well you, you'll notice what in every revival in israel up to josiah the very last one yeah all the high places were left yeah yeah they were never complete yeah, yeah. and then of course hezekiah is almost too little too late for all of his good you know sort of uh yeah. points uh you know he's what only two or three kings from the end you know yeah. uh the babylonian captivity um and that's the thing i fear is this you know the too little too late um and how long these things can can go on i mean so like hezekiah, hezekiah uh reinstitutes the, the passover what are you telling me that in the lifetimes of all these people that had never been celebrated uh yes that's what he's that's being what's what's been being said and, you know, our, I think a lot of us as Christians, when we look back at, at you know, Judaism and, and the experience of the Hebrews in the Old Testament Israel, we have this, we have this uh, I, I think, idea that, you know, it was pretty much um, things kind of going uh, like, you know, normal. Yeah. We, we assume that just because Moses gave the law, people followed it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it, we, they lose, Think about you know, we, that the next time yeah. you're driving on a highway and look at the speed yeah. limit signs, <laughs> or or you, know, you get these references to. Oh, and by the way, we found this book, you yeah, know, buried yeah. under some stuff in the temple. Yeah. What what is it? It's the law. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How long have you been going without it? You know, that's yeah. the thing that occurs to you. Know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And but you never told. It's just like it's like everybody knows that you know this had been neglected for a long, yeah. long time. But, yeah. you know, for us as readers today, we don't know that. Yeah, and we kind but of... I guess the, the thing that to, that's encouraging is just how quick that yeah. that was, yeah. that recovery. And for, for us, it, you know, especially in, in, you know, contemporary evangelical worlds and things, I think there's this, you know, there's another, another kind of problem that can be very similar in its results, and it's this over domesticated reading of the text that allows it to, but to us to have a, as moderns, a buffer between its reality and our trusting it, what we pick and choose is valuable for us. And so our, our hermeneutical grid is already, you know, distanced from that text. And I, I do, this is why we talk so much about the participatory nature of creation and our relation to God is because it's a way of reconnecting to reality in ways to hear that biblical text, the way it communicates our connectedness to these things. And I, I, you know, again, I do have glimpses of hope figures. I've, you know, I mentioned Lewis, Chesterton, Tolkien, we do that all the time. Um, They're not the whole 
solution to the problem, but they they were able to recapture the imagination closer to the biblical vision of things that help us to navigate something greatly lost that we can begin in our work, in our focus, in our teaching to, to emphasize and build upon. So, I mean, if anything, there had to be figures at any time in, in, in redemptive history that were still carrying out things and building upon things, even when the text of Scripture was lost and everything else. And Yeah, um, and, you know, thinking of even just Tolkien and Lewis and, you know, their uh, corpus, uh, that's why they must be destroyed uh, from the standpoint of many uh, yeah. people today. Uh, I just groan every time I hear about a new Tolkien film or a new uh. Lewis film and who's being entrusted with these things. Do they have oh, yeah. any... Do, do we have any confidence that they have any sympathy for the things that those writers stood for? Uh, I don't have any confidence in that. They, they're, they're just they're just using um, a kind of glib fanboy, yeah. superficial superficial uh, yeah. love of the of the the aesthetic or the yeah. you know the the heroic and just taking it and running with it to pursue completely antithetical yeah. um, agendas, uh, you know. Yeah, they they don't match the aesthetics of the work or the right. whatever else is going on, and and they dull in it. I mean, the the I guess the the most deter- disturbing thing would be that people would think the works are so boring, like those. Yeah attempts to depict it that they won't read it. I mean, the flip side is those attempts to depict it are often so boring and banal, not many people watch them. So. Yeah. Well, you know, I just think about the fact that the late, the, this, uh, the gal who was the director of the Barbie film has been given responsibility for uh, directing the new Narnia series. <laughs> Which worries the heck out of me. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, Rings of Power, they did the analysis of it, the Amazon thing. Only 35% of the American audience watched the whole first season. Hmm. So hopefully they lost enough money they won't try it again, but who, who knows? <laughs> well, they, they sank a billion dollars into it, so. Yeah. 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 Well, that's where we get back to there's a whole lot of ruin. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we, there, you, you have to burn through a lot of, you know, and, and uh, here in the United States, uh, we we really don't have any, uh, challengers on the global stage. Um, it's it appears as the that the Russians are just paper tigers and that the Chinese might be too. And um, anyway, on that happy note, why don't we wrap it up? <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your interest in our show. We want to thank a couple of new uh, Patreon sponsors. Thank you very much. Uh, if you'd like to join the the band, the merry band of Patreon supporters, uh, we would really appreciate it. Um, and you can follow the link in the show notes for that. And uh, I guess that's all for now. We, we're going to be, uh, you know, interviewing Pat in a couple of weeks, but we've got a couple of other things coming up between now and then that are great. So uh, we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another one of our podcasts. 
Got a Minute, featuring Larson Hicks and Rich Lusk. Theology, philosophy, economics, politics, and more for normal people.